It's our tale show for Tuesday, December 21st, uh, the year of our Lord 2021, and we are just about to Christmas, folks. We're so glad to have you with us on this holiday week. We hope your holiday season is going well, wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world. Thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us, whether you're watching on YouTube or listening or on the streams on the Big Talker. We sure appreciate your time. A couple of things we want to go through today. On the show, we're going to talk a little politics right off the bat. Uh, Zeke Webster, a friend of ours, Don Zico on Twitter. If you're in our Twitter circles, you know him well. He's a contributor to Ordinary Times. We're going to get into this story that has been going viral of the truck driver out in Colorado that got a mandatory 110-year sentence. Uh, we're going to break that down, why that happened, uh, why folks feel that might have been unjust, the things that go on to it, and something that's become kind of an ongoing narrative where we react to these high-profile sentencings and criminal trials and court cases, and we don't pay attention to the things that happen before them that predetermine what is going to happen in those, like the prosecutors, like how things are charged, like how laws are written. We're going to get into all that with our friend Zeke Webster as our guest. We're also going to break down one of the great mysteries of Christmas, and uh, our friend Brian O'Nolan, who's been doing lots of... uh, Christmas music and Christmas songs at Ordinary Times. Uh, He thinks he has solved the mystery of one of the sillier songs, and we're going to get into that later. But first, let's talk some politics. Uh, In the dead of the night, uh, Saturday morning, uh, the Senate of the United States of America, the world's greatest deliberate body, adjourned. Uh, The legislative session for the year is over. That's it. It's done. There's nothing else getting accomplished. Which begs the question of what did they get accomplished? A lot of people on either side would say they didn't get a whole lot accomplished. Folks are very, very upset. All day Sunday when the news broke, uh, all day Monday, they hashed it out. Uh, Monday on the Sunday shows, uh, what precipitated a lot of this besides the adjournment was Joe Biden, the senator from the great state of West Virginia, went on Fox News Sunday and said, I'm a no for Build Back Better. He said, it's a no for me for this legislation. People lost their collective minds online, but let's back up for a second. First of all, if your entire agenda relies on one senator and you try to push that agenda through without getting that one senator on board ahead of time, then that's bad strategy. That's not a strategy. That's hoping. That's wish casting. That's we're going to do this and we're going to hope that it works out okay. Well, it didn't work out okay. Now we're at the end of the year and we know how this story ends. But part of the reason the story ends this way and people are so angry is the way this story has been covered by the news media and our political class and the Biden administration and some other folks for the better part of this entire year. Let us back up. Do you remember and recall when Joe Biden came into office and he won a decently healthy victory over Donald Trump? It was mostly the same margin in the Electoral College that Donald Trump had won in 2016, although he got a record amount of votes. But do you remember the coverage? Allow me to refresh your memory. New York Times, January 31st, 
copying Roosevelt, meaning Franklin Delano, not Teddy. Biden wants a fast start. Now comes the hard part. MSNBC, April, Joe Biden is no FDR, but if he keeps listening to progressives, he could be. Daily Beast, January 20th, 2021. Biden's first 100 days will be the biggest since FDR's. Foreign Policy, April 12th. The most vital 100 days since FDR. We could go on and on and on. There was lots of these, you know. And what, what was with all these FDR comparisons? Well, the New Deal and sweeping change. And uh, this was going to be the branding that was going to be the Biden administration's legacy for the first year. And, and before you say, well, the media put that upon them, uh, Ron Klain, who is the chief of staff, uh, egged this on himself. He tweeted pictures of the Biden cabinet side by side with the FDR cabinet. Uh, he retweeted pieces that compared the administration to FDR. It was clearly a strategy by both the Biden administration and it's the sympathetic folks that are in the news media and commentariat that they wanted to be FDR 2.0. They wanted this sweeping change. They wanted big ticket stuff. They wanted to really put their mark on things. The problem was the same election that brought President Biden into office also gave the country a 50-50 Senate. Now, you can complain all you want about it. You can say whatever you want about the election, but that's what happened. We have a 50-50 Senate. And to our Democratic and progressive friends, I might remind you, you might not have even gotten that if what happened in Georgia in the special election didn't happen, where Donald Trump and his followers and a bunch of other people went down there, suppressed their own vote, and you flipped two seats in Georgia. There's a high probability that without that occurring, you may not have had the Senate at all, but you did. We have a 50-50 Senate. Vice President Harris is the tiebreaker, so the Democrats have a majority in the Senate on paper. In actuality, it's a split Senate. They also still retain the House of Representatives, although it was by a slimmer margin, and they can't afford to lose too many votes when they go to do things. The politics of this year was dictated not by the strategy, not by machinations, not by branding by the Biden administration or the media or commentators or anybody else. The legislative agenda for 2021 was dictated by math. It was a 50-50 Senate. You weren't going to get sweeping anything. You were going to have to negotiate and work hard and horse trade and swap and conjole and do everything you could do legislatively to get anything passed. So, there was lots of folks like me who said, you're probably going to pass COVID stuff and you're probably going to pass an infrastructure bill for reasons we'll get into in a moment, but you're not going to pass this sweeping change unless you get the moderate senators like Joe Manchin, like Kristen Sinema of Arizona on board and be aware of something else. Joe Manchin's just the one saying it out loud. There's all kinds of reporting from people who actually know what they're talking about in Congress, that there's other moderate Democratic senators who are either up for election or worried about their seats. But Joe Manchin can take the hit for them because he's secure. He's not running for election again until 2024. And he's saying he's probably not going to anyway. We'll see how that goes. But he's taking the hits for other people. This is not just a Joe Manchin thing. That's lazy reporting. That's lazy analysis. This is not just a Christian cinema thing. That's lazy reporting. That's lazy analysis. This was baked into the cake when the Senate was 50-50. If you want to blame Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, that's fine, but you also need to blame the candidates that could have won Senate races but didn't for the Democratic Party. Looking at you, Cal Cunningham, 
looking at you, Sarah Gideon, who raised tons of money and ended up falling drastically short, looking at the races that the Democratic Party poured gobs and gobs, nine figure sums of money, like against uh, Lindsey Graham in South Carolina and against uh, Mitch McConnell in Kentucky and didn't get in within even single digits of it. Run better campaigns, win elections. That's how you get sweeping change. You have to have a sweeping majority. You can say that Joe Biden had a mandate to not be Trump, but that same election also brought to power a split Senate. That's the reality. That's what you should have dealt with. But many people in our news media did not deal with that reality over and over and over again for months, all through the spring, all through the summer, all through the fall. And for the beginning of this winter, over and over again, it was, well, we can just negotiate Joe Manchin into this. Well, we can conjole Kristen Cinema into this. Well, we're going to massinate it to become this over and over and over again with this big build back better plan, this massive spending bill. Now, it's not dead. People are saying it's dead now. And this, I suspect in January, they will come back to this. Remember, it's already in reconciliation. So the Senate can do pretty much whatever they want with it and send it back to the House. That's another matter for another day. But for now, we need to understand how we got here. And it wasn't politics, and it wasn't a lack of anything other than math. It was a 50-50 Senate. This is how it was always going to be. Infrastructure got through, mind you, because of Joe Manchin, who shepherded it through and got a bipartisan deal for it. See, the thing, Congress critters and senators love the infrastructure bill because when they go back home and 2022 is an election year for the entire House and for 30 some odd senators, they get to go home and they get that nice fat dollar sign to put on their ads and on all their fundraising. I got X amount of dollars for my district that came out of the infrastructure bill. That's why the infrastructure bill was probably always going to pass in some shape or form. They needed to show they did something to the folks when they go home to run for reelection or to fundraise. And they did. They got infrastructure through. Build Back Better is going to have to wait till the spring. And trying to herd all the cats of the different factions of both parties to try to get anything done in the spring with the bearing down of the 2022 election is going to make it way more hard than it was this year. Everybody knows this. That's why they were trying so hard to get it done now. Does it mean they won't get it done? They can still get something done. But they're going to have to give Joe Manchin and folks like him, what they want to get it done. Will they be willing to? And when it goes back to the House, will the moderates and progressives who had to compromise to get it there in the first place feel like playing ball yet again when it's their heads on the chopping block come November? There's a lot of moving parts here. A lot of people are reacting to this new news about the end of the legislative season. But just remember that if you stay ahead of the news, you'll know how to react to it in an intelligent and informed manner. This was the result that was always going to happen out of a 50-50 Senate. Keep your bearing, keep your mind on you, and you won't be shocked and shaken when things that were probably inevitable happen. We got more Herd Tell coming right after this. Welcome back to Herd Tell Radio. Another thing about this mansion thing that's just eating me up if you're down to where one piece of legislation is make or break on whether our country is going to hold together, or you're in the place where one person's vote, that's whether a Senator or a house member or the president even is going to be make or break, whether the entire Republic falls, you're already in a bad and unhealthy position. You've already been put in a position 
where you're going to be susceptible to bad information, bad news, and bad trends in the news media. Why, why are you doing that to yourself? It's not reality. One bill is not ever make or break. Every election is pitched to us as the most consequential of our lifetime, and it never is. The next one is the same thing again. Every single major piece of legislation is going to save the country, and the people that are for it are going to say the country will be destroyed unless they get it. This is not a healthy way to do anything. You know, This is borderline an abusive way to do things, constantly leveraging people, constantly holding things over people's head, constantly fear-mongering. The only way to stop that is to get people to stop doing it, quit incentivizing them. Now, I understand it's politics. There's leverage. There's coercion. There's conjoling. There's negotiation. You know, let's be adults about this thing. But when it gets to the point where people are just losing their minds on their social media, that the world is going to end because something that never had a chance of passing in the first place didn't pass, and they spent the better part of a year working themselves into a lather over it strictly off of what the narratives were and not on the realities of the situation on the ground, that's a deeply unhealthy place. That's why we spend so much time talking about turning down the noise. It's not just so you get good information to make good decisions. It's just a healthier way to do things. It leaves you vulnerable to bad faith actors. We've talked about unworthy schemers. We've talked about folks that want to take advantage of people. Always being worked up and always having your emotional bandwidth cranked to maximum leaves you susceptible to that stuff. So instead of understanding that there was a 50-50 Senate and it was going to be incredibly hard to pass anything and starting with that understanding, folks worked themselves into all kinds of machinations where this was going to happen and they got away from the reality of it. We need to keep our politics as close to reality as it's possible because it keeps us safe from getting suckered into news media narratives and from bad things happening. The ability to maintain your bearing is the most important part that's going to keep you uh, from being susceptible to these unworthy schemers and these bad faith actors and all the bad stuff that's out there. Don't let the emotions overtake you. If you do get emotional, it's fine. It's part of human beings being. But you can't lose your bearing because if everything becomes life and death, you're going to miss the really important stuff. You're going to be susceptible to people taking advantage of you. And that's not good for you, it's not good for your family, it's not good for your community, and it's not good for our country. We shouldn't tolerate our elected officials and our news media constantly keeping us in a state of outrage and anger. It's bad for everybody. And until we tell them to stop it, they're going to keep doing it. So start with yourself. Don't be susceptible that every piece of legislation is life or death. Don't be susceptible that you have to take an entire amount of bad to get one little slice of good. Keep your bearing. Be discerning and don't get caught up in the news cycle noise. More Hertel Radio right after this. Welcome back to Hertel Radio. I'm Andrew Donson. Thank you so much for being with us on this Tuesday. Thrilled to have you. Uh, we're going to talk to our buddy Zeke Webster here in a minute. That's Don Zico on Twitter. You should follow him. He's a great writer, too, at Ordinary Times from time to time. Uh, this story out in Colorado has just exploded across social media and has crept into the news media as well over the weekend. There was a truck driver out in Colorado. Um, I'm probably going to butcher his name, but I'll do my best with it. Uh, Rahel Angulera Medeiros. And what happened was he was involved in an accident a couple of years ago. Uh, he killed four people 
and caused a 20 some car pileup on I-70 out in Colorado. Now, if you're not familiar, I-70 is a very dangerous stretch of road. There's a lot of accidents there. Uh, it is well known for runaway trucks and things like this. That's why there's truck exit ramps out there. The particulars of this case are a little involved. You can look them up a little bit separately, but basically he was charged with 27 counts and convicted on 20, excuse me, he was convicted of 27 counts, including vehicular homicide. Uh, he had lost control of the truck. It careened down the highway doing about 85 miles an hour at one point. He was swerving all over the place. He missed a runaway truck ramp, uh, which is part of the charges, eventually causing this massive pileup and four people tragically died. What has got everybody's attention is because of the sentencing. He was sentenced to 110 years in prison. It was a mandatory sentence. And it has raised a whole lot of questions because of some of the circumstances involved in this case. Uh, he says that the brakes on his truck failed, uh, that there was a mechanical issue on the truck. That's why it was going so fast. That's why it was careening out of control. He was swerving because he was trying to miss people. He was trying to debate whether he should go in the medium, which, of course, then he could go into oncoming traffic. He was trying to get off the road. Uh, you can imagine being in a truck uh, with no brakes on it. The decision making broke down pretty quickly. Um, a petition has been signed. It's up over 4 million signatures now for him to get some kind of a clemency or commutation of sentence. Let's break this down a little bit. And again, you can you need to read the particulars of the case yourself, get all the details before you just go popping off on social media about this case, because there are some complications to it. But here, here's a couple of things that stood out to me. Now, if you don't know my background, I was actually a manager and a supervisor in the trucking industry. Uh, in the not too distant past. It's what I did for a living. I've been doing transportation most of my adult life before I became a writer and got into the media and other things because of my health issues. Uh, I know a little bit about trucking. The first question that popped into my mind was, how in the world did this individual ever get behind a commercial truck? You have to understand that commercial trucking is a very high liability uh, field. I would tell our new hire drivers all the time to get it through their heads. You are sitting in front of 80,000 pounds of killing machine, and what makes it safe or not safe is you. That's your responsibility. The people saying he has no responsibility and the trucking company alone has responsibility, that's not accurate. Uh, part of, you are federally mandated to do a pre-trip inspection that your equipment is good before you leave. You have federal protections to not drive a truck that is not safe to operate. Uh, he did not do that. Uh, he did drive the truck. Um, he is culpable for what he did. So we're not talking about innocence or guilt here. We're talking about sentencing and we're talking about what is and isn't justice and what is and isn't fair punishment. Now you can say four people died and there's no justice for that on earth. And I'm not going to disagree with you. There is not. Um, but there's some mitigating things we need to talk about here. The trucking company has things like bankruptcy protection that will protect them from the civil suits that came their way. Uh, the driver does not have that option, especially this driver with the criminal charges. The trucking company is pretty much not going to have very much consequence other than going out of business and whatever happens to that. In fact, you'll have a hard time finding the name of the trucking company and who owned the truck but this man's name is all over the place. They're perfectly happy to let him take all the blame. A couple other things happened. The prosecutor that brought this case is not the prosecutor that finished it. The attorney for this man 
that was his attorney during the case did not finish the trial. He had to change attorneys midstream. Uh, there is, we're going to speak truth and tell it what it is. There was a lot of sentiments because this man was an immigrant, uh, that played into a lot of the initial outcry when the initial accident happened. Uh, there is conflicting reports about his ability to read and write English at the time of the accident. He spoke rather decent and eloquently English in his, uh, sentencing hearing. So I don't know the validity of the, the validity of that, but there are those accusations out there. Again, if all that is true, this gentleman had no business being hot behind the truck of a commercial vehicle. He was, there's liability to the trucking company that he should not have been in this vehicle. If there was mechanical issues with the vehicle, he should not have been on the road with the vehicle. He is culpable for what he did, but he was also set up to fail by a cascading system of decisions by other people to not obey the law, not obey the regulations, and not be an ethical company. Those would all be mitigating circumstances that in our legal system would be brought up during sentencing. But they can't be because this is a mandatory sentence. The way he was charged by the initial prosecutor was that these are mandatory sentences and they had to be served consecutively. And he was charged with 27 counts and therefore, he gets a 110-year sentence. This man is now currently 26 years old. So if he had a 20- or 30-year sentence, which would be about normal for murder or vehicular manslaughter or some of the worst of the crimes that we have in our society, he would be getting out of prison at 46 or 56. He would pay his debt for society, and then he would go about his business and try to rebuild his life. As it is, he will die in prison now. That doesn't seem fair to folks. And the new prosecutor says, well, it's a mandatory sentence. We can't do anything about it. That's where I start having a problem. No, you charged it knowing it was a mandatory sentence. So you don't get to wash your hands at the end and go, well, that's the mandatory sentence. Nothing I can do about it. No, you charged it that way. So I have questions about the prosecution. I have questions about the trucking company. I have questions about the legislative part of our legal system where we legislate these zero tolerance and mandatory sentencing laws and take it out of the legal system under the guise of we're going to be tough on crime. And then you wind up with things like this happening. I have a lot of questions about this case, but I'm not a lawyer. So let's talk to a lawyer about it. We're going to talk to Zeke Edwards about this. He is an attorney. I'm not. I'm going to ask him these questions and we're going to see what he says about it. Talk about not just the case, because we know this man's guilty. We're going to talk about sentencing. We're going to talk about prosecutors. We're going to talk about the way laws are worked and why we don't get any attention on these cases until after the fact, when there was work to be done before it ever happened. We'll talk to Zeke Webster, attorney, right after this on Hertel Radio. Back to Hertel Radio. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Uh, let's talk a little legal, a very loud and viral story that's going around. And we're going to talk to one of our legal friends, uh, Zeke Webster. You know him as Don Zico on the Twitter, and he's a sometimes contributor at Ordinary Times, great writer and a public defender in North Carolina. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine, Andrew. Nice to see you. Uh, we, we were both tweeting about this and then tweeting together about it. A case out in Colorado, um, a guy that was driving a truck, his name was Rogel Aguero Maderos. I apologize if I'm not pronouncing that correctly. Um, got a 110-year sentence. You reacted strongly. I reacted strongly. Uh, but you kind of take the legal angle and tee this up for us so we can discuss it. Sure. So um, 
I, you know, I don't want to get too, too, too deep into the weeds here because this is a Colorado case. I don't practice Colorado law, but uh, the, the bottom, the bottom line of my book is that he was charged with um, a number of charges that didn't require, that weren't, you know, intent, you know, they're not saying that he meant to kill anybody. They're saying that he negligently didn't do what he was supposed to do to avoid accidentally killing other people. And he was, uh, there's a whole stack of charges. Uh, he went to trial. He was found guilty of all of them. And, uh, the, uh, the ultimate sentence was 110 years in prison. So in essence, uh, life without parole, uh, as far as I understand how that would work out in Colorado, even though it's not officially life parole, uh, 110 years, you know, you don't need, uh, you don't need to do a whole lot of complicated math to figure that out. The, uh, the trial judge, when handing down this sentence, actually said very explicitly that he didn't feel that he had any discretion, according to the statute, to um, to give the man a shorter sentence than he gave him. Uh, and that he said that if he had the legal ability to give a shorter sentence, he would have given a shorter sentence. Uh, because I think most people would agree that uh, life in prison for an accidental act is uh, a pretty grossly disproportionate. And the uh, the thing that I was going off on on Twitter about was that I feel like uh, the people that you know, when when you when you have something like this happen, when you have a sentence come out that appears to be pretty far out of line with what somebody's intuition is about what a fair sentence would be, uh, everybody says that they don't have a choice, and that includes the people who did in fact have a choice uh, to make the things the the uh, situation work out differently than how it did. And in this case, I think primarily the person that had a choice that either could have chosen differently or may still choose differently is the governor of Colorado and the prosecutor in this case. Now, to be fair, the prosecutor that ended this case that's doing the press now, they didn't actually bring the charges, but they didn't change them either. And the issue here at hand is because this has a mandatory sentence to the way it was charged. This was a runaway type legislation, sort of almost a zero tolerance type of legislation or excuse me, uh, uh, sentencing guideline. Uh, but talk about that because over and over and over again in these high profile cases, we talk, we get kind of wrapped up in the guilt and the innocence. There's no real question of guilt here. The guy did it. He does have culpability. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the mandatory sentences, people get all shocked and shaken, and they never talk about the part of that, which is this all starts charging, and it is a common practice for prosecutors to overcharge. Uh, is that part of the problem here, and is that the big part of the story, uh, besides just maybe this is kind of a draconian way to do law? Uh, that's where a lot of this starts with the prosecutor, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, at least from, from what the news accounts that I'm reading, they're saying that he was convicted of 27 different counts. But the 27 different counts are all basically different ways to describe the same basic act that he lost, that he drove this truck in a way in which he lost control, that he hit a number of other cars, that four people were killed. And, you know, very often you have a situation like that where you can take the same basic set of facts and describe it as very many different counts, very many different crimes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as a prosecutor, you know, you have discretion. Nobody's going to force you to bring a certain set of charges, they may not force you to bring any charges at all when you come be, when you become aware of a certain set of facts that, you know, may result in criminal liability. And in this case, the uh, apparently the law in, Cal in Colorado meant that if he was convicted, 
uh, of the 27, then he had to do a consecutive sentence for the 27, meaning that you serve one sentence after the other, after the other. You add them all up on top of each other instead of having the years for any of them run, to, run together. And that's a choice the prosecutor made. I mean, they could have dismissed or even just like not went, gone forward to trial with some of those counts. And, uh, you know, if they had gotten a conviction on, you know, two or three or four counts, this man would still have been facing prison time, probably quite significant prison time, but he wouldn't have been facing 110 years. And that was a choice that the prosecutor made. And it's, it's a very common thing for plea bargaining to take the form of a prosecutor saying, you know, we've teed up all, you know, X, Y, and Z, all these different charges. If you get convicted of all this stuff, you're going to face an enormous amount of time in prison. And if you plead guilty, we're only going to proceed on some of them or we'll only proceed on a lesser included or something like that. That's what the prosecutor had the power to do here. And that's what he didn't do. Talking to Zeke Webster, a, a public defender in North Carolina, about this case out in Colorado. Now, here some of the factors that one of the reasons I say there's no real doubt of guilt here, though, is uh, he was a truck driver. Part of your truck driver is you have to sign off on a pre-trip inspection that your equipment is good to the best of your knowledge. Uh, this is I-70 for people that aren't familiar. This is in Colorado. This is one of the most dangerous roads in America grade-wise. So the high speeds that are involved, it's because of the geography involved here. Uh, there's culpability on the driver here. Um, to you, though, and by the way, we should point out the prosecutor's office. Uh, and again, this is the new one. This isn't the one that brought the original charges, but they didn't they didn't change them. So we got to just say, you know, they're they're OK with it. Uh, they did say that they tried to do plea bargain negotiations and that those went nowhere. You can take that either or um, the mitigating things in here are you have four dead people. You have horrific video of the aftermath. This caused a 26 some car pileup with fire. And you can imagine the images. You have uh, an immigrant from Cuba. Uh, part of the things that have come out is the fact that he doesn't read and write English uh, very well, if at all. These are all mitigating factors, but those were things in my mind also of not just towards guilt, but there was a long process that put him in this position in the first place. Those people should also have legal culpability. And that's not really being factored into the sentencing because of the mitigating factors. No, he shouldn't have been there. Yes, he's guilty. There should have been a couple of gatekeepers, even legally, according to how regulation for truck drivers is in America. There was gatekeepers that should have been in place to keep him from ever being in the position at all. But that can't be taken into account for the sentencing, can it? Uh, no, I mean, because the, the whole point here is that the law is constructed so that once he was convicted of these particular things that the jury determined he was guilty of, then everything was automatic. That nobody, uh, nobody, I guess, except the governor who could commute, commute the sentence or pardon him, then had the ability to say, well, yeah, he's guilty, but 110 years is excessive for an unintentional uh, act, even if, it, even if it wasn't an act that uh, had a, a criminal culpability atta attached. And, um, you know, part of what I think is really interesting here is that uh, in, in this case, and this is pretty typical in a criminal trial in the United States, the jury did not know when they were determining this man's guilt or innocence, what sentence was likely or even what sentence was guaranteed to follow from a guilty verdict. And in fact, one of those jurors uh, got on Twitter after the sentencing came out and said that if she had known that, she would have voted to acquit, even though she knew he was guilty because she viewed that sentence to be uh, 
uh, to be immoral and disproportionate to uh, what the man had actually done. And, you know, I mean, it's a way that the, the, the people that, um, it's a way of, uh, in my view, at least skewing the system towards these harsher sentences and sometimes harsher sentences that are uh, uh, reached with the help of people that don't actually know what the implications of what they're doing are going to be for people's lives down the road. Talking to Zeke Webster, a uh, public defender and an attorney about this case. Uh, we're going to have more with him in just a moment. We're going to talk a little bit more about the prosecutor angle on this. Some really interesting uh, comments that the prosecutors themselves made about this case and the outrage. Uh, we'll follow up with that right after this on Hertel Radio. back on Hertel Radio with our friend uh, Zeke Webster. He's Don Zico on the Twitter and an Ordinary Times contributor from time to time. Do follow him. He's very outspoken on the things he's passionate about on the legal side, especially things like public defense and prosecutor conduct, which we want to ask you about here. Uh, there was a quote in here. There was a little bit of a back and forth as goes, because you know how these things go after the after the court, they walk outside, you have the prosecutors, and then you have the, the defendant's uh, counsel. And the one gets asked the question, then the press will run to the other one, then they run back to the other one for the response. So I want to read you these comments, because I, I think they're a little bit telling of something that you were just talking about, how the, um, the system can get kind of skewed just by the way the prosecutors do things here. Um, this is a quote directly from the prosecutor. Let me quote it directly. I have little sympathy for someone who turns down a reasonable plea bargain offer and then goes to trial and bemoans the fact that the worst thing that could happen to them happened. Uh, Greg Blackshire, the former district attorney, that's the one that originally brought the charges, said. Uh, and then the defense attorney, of course, said it, I, it's out of line for the prosecutor to blame the defendant for wanting to exercise his constitutional rights. Um I think I got a little bit of an inkling why this thing got overcharged now. Uh, I understand it's a high profile case. I understand the emotions of four dead people in a horrifically bad way to die. Uh, at the same time, when I hear a prosecutor who's already been removed from the case, so he doesn't even have a dog in the fight and he feels the need to go there, that raises a red flag in my mind of, yeah, there's there there was a crime and there's punishment, but I'm not sure that justice was getting a, a fair shot from the go here. Yeah, I well, I certainly it certainly strikes me the same way. And, uh, you know, we we aren't privy to what the plea negotiations looked on this case, uh, looked like on this case, uh, what uh, what a prosecutor or a defense attorney might think of as a reasonable plea could be all kinds of things. And we uh, we, we simply don't know. Um but when he says that the um, that basically essentially that it's the defendant's own fault that he got this disproportionate sentence after turning down a, a plea bargain, uh, again, turning down a plea bargain and insisting on a jury trial is it's asserting a constitutional right that we all have. It's, it's, it's expecting the state to actually prove that what they're, they're saying is true before they you know, throw you in a cage. I, I don't think it's an unreasonable thing to ask, even if it is a case where where the facts are very strong or a case where the crime is very serious. Um, I think, you know, even if we were talking about a much shorter amount of time, if it were you or I and we were facing even, you know, one, two, three, four, five years in prison. I mean, it's uh, it's very easy to understand why you wouldn't want to just give that up without a fight. Um, yeah. And I, 
I'm sure I suspect that the uh, defense in this case thought they at least had some chance of uh, of convincing a jury that this was, you know, that there was fault, but not that there was criminal fault, or maybe that there was not as much criminal fault in this case as would have been implied by whatever plea bargain was made. But the thing is that if if you're a prosecutor, you know, you do not have, you're not required to bring every single charge that you could maybe possibly plead at trial that exists out there in the world. Um, there are all sorts of prudential reasons why prosecutors don't do that. There's, you know, there are not enough resources to do it. There's not enough time in court, not enough judges, not enough anything. There's not enough room in the prisons as they currently exist. And if the pros- if prosecutors actually did charge everybody for everything they did that was a violation of the criminal statute, every single one of us would be a felon right now. I mean, on some level, you have to exercise discretion. And in a case like this, after the plea negotiations had broken down, there's nothing stopping this prosecutor from proceeding with charges that would have still resulted in prison time if they got the conviction, but that would not have resulted in an automatic life sentence. You know, that ultimately, that's a choice they had. Um, and that's the direction they went with it. And I, I personally think that, you know, uh, I don't think that a prosecutor should pursue a charge when they know that if they think that the sentence that would result from them getting the conviction they're asking for would be uh, excessively or excessive in an immoral way. Yeah. And we should point out here uh, that the, the now convicted person uh, he's 26 years old now. He was younger than that when this occurred. So even something pretty harsh by legal standards, say a 20 or 30 year sentence, that would not have necessarily been a death sentence or life in prison sentence because yep. you're talking 46 years old, 56 years old. Uh, I think that might be part of the reason that people have kind of latched onto that sentencing. But um, flip that around for just a second for me, because you are a public defender. Uh, you're on that end of the legal system. You're kind of on the the end of the legal system where there isn't a lot of advocacy and there isn't a lot of money and there isn't a lot of attention. Is this one of those things where TV and movies is kind of skewed how we view things? Because we've all watched the cop shows where it's like, get the conviction, uh, get the plea bargain, get it all locked down ahead of time. Uh, how does that in a practical way, that mentality skew trying to get fair justice for defendants, though, when the entirety of the system is pressuring them downwards of, well, you know, you're guilty of something, even if it's not this, you're guilty of something. So just take your hour, take your years and get on with it. Uh, in a practical way, how does that affect what you're trying to do as a defender? When I talk to people about my work, you know, one, one question that, that I get all the time that I think every defense attorney gets all the time is some variation of how do you defend people that are guilty of what they're charged with? And, you know, and I, I think that it's it's kind of hard and counterintuitive to get across how I, I think that's almost like a, a question. It's, it, it, it almost doesn't even matter um, in a way that's sort of hard to get across. But, you know, my view would be that you know, we, we, we pay a whole lot of attention to the questions of guilt or innocence. And, you know, and people appropriately get very worked up about people that are wrongly convicted of things that they did not actually do. But, you know, I think that it can be similarly unjust if you have somebody that is wrongly punished where they did do something and it was wrong to do it. But uh, what is actually happening to them as a result is for one reason or another, unfair, unjust, disproportionate, et cetera. And, you know, on a day to day basis, I, I, you know, I, I feel like I struggle to get that across to 
people that don't work in the system at all and the general public. But I think I struggle more to get that across to prosecutors and judges. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, you uh, often you find yourself asking like, well, okay, so you want, you want this person to serve this sentence. I mean, but if they do like what, who does that help? How does that make the world a better place than if they didn't serve that sentence? And that's usually just not a kind of question that most of the DAs that I encounter are uh, interested in answering. Uh, let me ask you a really unfair question since we're talking about public mm-hmm. perceptions. and um, it, it befuddles me in the couple of years I've been doing politics and writing and public things. We have, when we talk about public officials, we don't seem to want to talk about prosecutors. They are some of the most powerful people to an ordinary person's life. They can get in your life and ruin it in a big hurry. They could also help you get justice if a loved one or somebody you care about has had a wrong done to them or you yourself. These are immensely powerful people. And yet, and they're almost all elected in in the United States of America, almost all of them are public officials up for elections, or at least their bosses are for the office. And yet municipal elections, which is where those prosecutors, that is some of the lowest turnout elections. It's it's one of those everybody above kind of things. Why is that? Because it, it's there's a real disconnect from the public of we yell about the people in Washington who have some effect on our lives. But these people locally and in municipalities and especially in small towns, prosecutors are basically gods. Um, why, why that disconnect? Why can't people kind of get their heads around like, man, I really, that's the election I really need to pay attention to. Cause that's the one that's really affecting things around me. I mean, uh, that's a big question. I don't think I really have an answer to it, but I will say, uh, you know, especially as somebody that's practiced in uh, rural jurisdictions that I think part of the problem is that, um, there are a lot of places where the, the current state of the industry means that there's not a lot of resources in journalism to cover these things. And the, um, you know, if you're going to look for like a nuanced detailed account of what a particular prosecutor's office is doing, that can often be pretty hard to find. And oftentimes the only, uh, the, what journalism does exist is just because of the way the profession works often very dependent upon information that they're getting directly from the police or from prosecutors or things like that. Uh, I think often it's, it's difficult, it's a difficult subject to cover effectively. And um, as a result, it's, you know, I think it doesn't really break through into people's consciousness sometimes in the way that national politics does. But I I have at least a little bit of a hope that, um, you know, with the movement that we've seen lately for these like, you know, progressive prosecutors or reform prosecutors, which are, uh, you know, a whole a whole set of issues that I could I could talk about for quite a while on their own. I, I think that is bringing a little bit more attention to, you know, at the very least, like DA elections in big cities uh, like your your Philadelphia's, your San Francisco's, et cetera, than than there would have been even just a few years ago. I, uh, once again, a theme that we keep covering on our, our shows over and over again is uh, we're just seeing the ripple effects of the death of local journalism. And here we are again in legal things that we haven't even we didn't think legally, but we're going to definitely address that in the future. Uh, Zeke Webster, I appreciate your time very much today, sir. Uh, folks can find him on Twitter at Don Zico. Uh, I'm going to shamelessly plug for him to do some writing for Ordinary Times and get it submitted. And uh, you continue fighting the good fight for the downtrodden up there in the uh, public defender's office, my friend. I appreciate your time today. Oh, thanks. It was, it was a pleasure to be on. Yeah, we're definitely going to have you back. So uh, uh, we appreciate you and we will see you again soon. All right. Thank Bye-bye. you, sir.
back to Hertel Radio. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, heavy topics today, so let's end on a bit of a light note. Our friend Brian O'Nolan, he's been on the program. We're going to have him on again as soon as we can, has been doing a series on Christmas music. He's done Crimes Against Humanity in Christmas music. Uh, this past weekend, he also did one on Silly Songs. And uh, for those of you that like true crime and like to solve mysteries, uh, he has one for you. Uh, reading from his piece in Ordinary-Times.com, uh, Advent Calendar Day 21, Silly Christmas Songs, uh, Brian O'Nolan goes here, quoting, I'll start, if I may, at the beginning and get to the part about the sick, twisted family question in a moment. And this section is titled, Nothing Says Christmas Like Murder Apologist. I have a major pet peeve when it comes to Christmas movies, songs, and stories, and it is this. If the question... If the media in question is premised on the idea that some people don't believe in Santa Claus, you've let the cat out of the bag. I'm looking at you, Elf, Miracle on 34th Street. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus, and Grandma got ran over by a reindeer, and so on and so on. Now to the crime in question. The crime that takes place in Grandma got ran over by a reindeer is as realistic as the murder that is the premise to the game Clue, in which a murder has occurred, but not only does nobody know if the deceased was shot, strangled, stabbed, or beaten to death, but a myrtle so brutal as to leave the question open was apparently done so cleanly that its location is unknown in a house where only six people were present. My first question on investigation would be, which of you knows how to remove and dispose of three quarters of a gallon of human blood in under 15 minutes? But I digress again. The evidence, which will be made clear that grandpa killed grandma and the kids singing the song is covered for him, consists of a verse and a half when reviewed in the light cast by the chorus quoting from the song she'd been drinking too much eggnog and we begged her not to go but she left her medication so she stumbled out the door into the snow now that first verse grandma clearly has a bit of a problem but the kid clearly places the blame on her for going out into the snow in the next verse we get a description of the scene but it's poorly written and i have no idea what incriminating claws marks on her back are supposed to be other than a lazy pun and lazier poetry now we are also proud of grandpa he's been taking it so well huh you didn't say decades of marriage and the very next day you're cool with the fact that your wife allegedly got run down in the middle of the night nothing suspicious about that at all better have a pretty good cover story if you want to stay out of jail grandpa the song you can say there's no such thing as Santa, but as for me and Grandpa, we believed. It's a good thing Grandpa doesn't look like Santa. Oh, wait. Maybe he does. Brian O'Nolan, writing in Ordinary-Times.com. We hope your whole day season is going well. That's it for Hertel Radio for today. We'll be back tomorrow. Culture and politics without all the caterwauling. That's what we do here. As long as you keep listening, we'll keep doing it. Keep subscribing on youtube and all the podcasting platforms uh we're also streaming on big talker fm on their streaming service their app their facebook page has the video and their listen live tab 6 a.m with a replay at 3 p.m every weekday we'd be thrilled if you took us in that way however you're listening or watching make sure you leave a comment and a rating that's really really important uh if you want to get in touch with us you can email us directly hertel show uh, on gmail dot com or at her tell show on the twitter we'd love to hear from you questions comments epistles throw them at us might even put them on the show or answer them there as long as you keep listening we'll keep doing it 
We hope you and yours are well. Wherever you are across the street and around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. And we'll talk to you all tomorrow on Hertel Radio. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.